you will, please open your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel in the Old Testament. Today we'll be in chapter 13 as we walk through this book. Last week we finished 2 Samuel chapter 12, and we saw that King David had repented of his grievous sins. In chapter 11, David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, and she had conceived. And then David tried to cover up all this by making it look like Bathsheba's husband was the real father by bringing him back to Jerusalem from a war. That plan failed miserably. So David then plotted to have Bathsheba's husband killed in battle. The Lord sent the prophet Nathan to rebuke David for his sin, and he delivered the Lord's indictment to David, which is summed up by the Lord's words in chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. Why have you despised the word of the Lord, to do what is evil in his sight. And then in verse 10, You have despised me, the Lord says. God is making very clear that the sinful acts David committed from came from a sinful heart. And that had meant that he had despised, which means treated with contempt, the very God who had saved him. Now we should be very careful to see that what God is saying to David about why his actions were so serious. His adultery and tempted, attempted cover-up and murder, here's why they're serious as all sin is to some degree here. They stole the glory that David owed to the Lord. When Nathan finished delivering the Lord's recounting of what he had done for David, and then the accusations against David, and then the consequences that David would see from his sin... In verses 7 through 14 of chapter 12, David immediately and humbly confessed and repented of his sin. And we have a very interesting bookend in that chapter because the chapter started off, if you remember, and in that day it was time, the time of war, and David wasn't there. He stayed home which is how this all got started. At the end of the chapter, we see that after repenting, he was at the war. He gathered the whole nation, as many as possible, and joined the fight against the Ammonites. Now, we have an incredible record of this confession and repentance in Psalm 51 which David wrote describing this whole process. 
And perhaps the most glaring part of his confession to the Lord is in Psalm 51, verses 3 and 4. There we read this. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Now see, he knows that his sinful actions affected people, several, especially in the most serious and ugly ways possible, adultery and taking a life. But he also knows that the bottom line is that his sin was against the Lord. He himself had become the sinful thief of the glory that he owed to God. And David prays in Psalm 51.10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Do you see what he did? He recognized that the sinful actions came from a sinful heart. David uses three different Hebrew words in Psalm 51, just verses 1 through 4, but they're repeated throughout it, to describe what he is confessing. We see there the words transgressions, iniquity, and sin. And we should go, okay, what's the difference? Transgressions is a Hebrew word that implies self-assertiveness that lead to the wrong things. Iniquity expresses a twisted or distortion of what is right, and it ends up destroying everything. And then sin, the word sin itself, in Hebrew denotes a failure that misses the mark. So, David demonstrates that he understood very well the seriousness of his adultery and cover-up and murder, and that they all flowed out of a heart that asserted its own lustful desires above God's law. Transgression and twisted and distorted and ignored what God said by actions that did destroy people. Iniquity. And missed the mark in so many areas of responsibility. Protecting his people, honoring a woman's marriage, and the life of her warrior husband. Sin. And all those words are related, and they overlap so much, but it really lays bare what was going on here in David's heart. And he wrote this psalm. The point here is to recognize that we must confess and repent not only of the sinful outward actions, that are visible, but also, and much more importantly, the root sins in our hearts 
that give birth to those outward actions. Because it's what in our hearts that reveals our real attitudes toward God. What we really think about God. And one way to recognize these root sins is to identify them as pride, unbelief, and or selfishness. Pride, unbelief, and or selfishness. David's pride and selfishness led him to assert his belief that he had the right to overrule God because he deserved what he illicitly wanted. Bathsheba. In other words, he made himself God. Of course, there were all sorts of other contributing factors, but the pride in his heart combined with the selfishness of wanting what he wanted, no matter what, destroyed his what? His dependence and accountability to the Lord, which is actually not believing God, what God says about any of this. He first tried to cover up his affair and Bathsheba's resulting pregnancy with his child by bringing Uriah back from a war so that it would look like Uriah was the father. But Uriah, who was so faithful to his king and his fellow warriors in the war itself, that effort, that he wouldn't even go visit Bathsheba. Boy, that ruined David's plan. Very quickly, David fell to the point of actually then planning how to murder Uriah just to get him out of the picture. And getting his commander, Joab, to arrange it all. Uriah was in a group of the valiant men in the forefront of the hardest fighting. And Joab was instructed by David to tell the rest of these men to fall back right when the battle was fiercest which left Uriah exposed, and he was killed. Looked good, but it was murder. Much of Psalm 51 is actually David's own recognition and confession of and repentance of these root sins in his heart. 2 Samuel 12, in this chapter, Nathan the prophet has given right after his repentance David the assurance that his sin has been put away and forgiven. And we think, ah, oh, it's over. That part is. But David also learns that the child to come would die. And he would have to endure what we could call other severe consequences. In chapter 12:10, listen to the word of the Lord. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. So are you saying, good, we get a break now in chapter 13 from these sordid affairs? Sorry. Because we're going through this book expositionally, we do not have the choice before God to skip parts that are hard. 
Today, in chapter 13, we see these consequences start to come to pass. I'm not going to read this chapter out loud this morning for what I hope you agree are obvious reasons for a lot of little ones amongst us. But I've still got to run through the story of David's family's sordid and violent interactions so that we can answer a question that God wants us to ask. He wrote this by the Holy Spirit's What does the Lord intend for us to see here? What's the emphasis here in this tough chapter? Well, there's three main emphases in this text. First, in the first half of the chapter, the first 22 verses, there is no doubt that the major emphasis here is about the perversion that we ought to loathe as the people of God. The center of this story is the unfolding of the sordid lust of David's son, Amnon, and his Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde performance from infatuation and lust to the violation of and then seething hatred for his half-sister, Tamar. Let's go at this from the view and the voice of Tamar instead of primarily focusing on Amnon. In verses 5 through 11, Tamar is trapped. In verse 14 and 16, she is ignored. Also in verse 14, she is violated. In verse 15, she is hated. In verse 17, she's banished and thrown out. And in verses 18 and 19, and a little bit of 20, she's ruined and desolate. There should not be any way for anybody who values life to be able not to hear the cry of Tamar. This is tragic. It is horrible. It is unthinkable. It is perverse. It is an abomination. This is hard. Every person who hears this story, male or female, should be deeply troubled by the magnitude of the sin here and the depths to which it drags down both the perpetrator and the victim. If you're feeling like that right now, that's what you're supposed to feel like when you read this. We're all at that point. In verse 1, notice the convoluted family structure brought about by David's polygamy, which is forbidden in Deuteronomy 17.17. Amnon was David's firstborn son by... Ahinoam. We find that out in chapter 3. Absalom and Tamar's mother was Mekah, the daughter of Tolmei, the king of Geshur. We mentioned that 
back in a previous chapter. Now, David's descendants are listed in 1 Chronicles 3. And when you're going through this kind of stuff, you realize again why God put a list of descendants in several places in the Bible. Because if he didn't, we would be totally confused. It's already confusing. And in this list, in 1 Chronicles 3, we see the recipe for family disaster in the first nine verses. Here's why. David's first six sons, all born in Hebron before he went to Jerusalem, had six different mothers. Then in Jerusalem, 13 more sons were born by who knows how many more of these different wives. That's not delineated. Plus all the children of concubines, yes, concubines, plus all his daughters, which aren't even listed. Amnon and Tamar had the same father, but different mothers. When Amnon's wicked desire is suddenly and frightfully understood by Tamar, she says, No, my brother, do not violate me. And this is, as you can realize, two abominable sins condemned in Scripture in one act. Why is, which is why Tamar calls this an outrageous or horrible, disgraceful, wicked, that's the definition. Why is this, this is, that's why this is an outrageous thing, she says in verse 12. And she calls Amnon an outrageous or immoral, godless wretch or fool in verse 13. And that means she's calling him a wicked pervert. In other words, in her desperate appeal to Amnon, which is what that section is about, Tamnar gets across the very clear fact that only a wicked pervert would commit such a flagrantly godless act. She made it crystal clear, two things, that what Amnon was about to do was deplorable because it violated God's law, and that Amnon would be forever regarded as a godless wretch and wicked pervert. Ever heard of anybody named Amnon? kind of like being named Jezebel. Tamnar, Tamar was ple- had also pleaded with Amnon not to ignore the consequences for her. Tamar says, as for me, where could I carry my shame, my disgrace or reproach? But nothing was getting through, and she was not strong enough to fight Amnon off. Afterward, Amnon reveals a seething and a violently growing hatred toward the object of his sin, Tamar. He used two really harsh and bitter words in Hebrew that do not come across as well in the English. Uh, And literally says, get this 
out to a servant about her. One was, get up, this is to her, and the other was, get out. And she protests, more or less says that kicking her out now is a greater wrong than violating her. But he wouldn't listen. So he calls in a servant and tells him basically, get this out. What does that communicate? The word woman is not in the text. It's as if Tamar is a piece of trash to be dumped outside. And she is. Tamar is thrown out like garbage. And we read that she puts ashes on her head, which is a sign of mourning, tore the long robe that she wore, which symbolized the ruin of her life and the loss of her purity, and laid her hand on her head and went away, which symbolized exile and banishment. And she was crying aloud as she went, which showed that she viewed herself as good as dead. And when her full brother, Absalom, offers some consolation, it doesn't really help. Tamar remained unmarried and childless. Her full brother was her natural protector in that culture, since the children of polygamists lived by themselves in different family units. Verse 20 says she's a desolate woman. Now, if you're still breathing or trying to, how, how is your heart right now towards Tamar? How, how do you feel for her? If it's breaking, then you're right where the author wants you to be. We should all loathe. You don't hear that word very much anymore. We should all loathe and be deeply hurt by this wicked, perverted sin. And we should realize that there is also a perversion in us. This is not just somebody else. What? How can that be? The sin nature that still resides within us can put up a good fight to make it difficult to genuinely hate sin. Especially when it's celebrated in the culture that we live in. And a holy people should genuinely hate sin. We can be blind to the root sins of our own pride and unbelief and selfishness that we harbor in our own hearts and we try to hide. That's the first emphasis. The emphasis on the perversion that we ought to loathe. There's another emphasis in our text. It's the graphic depiction of all the male, major male characters. We, we get an incredible picture of four men in particular. Now, we've already focused on the female character, so let's look at these four male characters. 
And the first, of course, is Amnon. And we could describe him as passion without love. He allowed his infatuation, which is how this started, with his own half-sister to grow into a lust so powerful that he actually became sick because he couldn't possess her. The text describes him actually being physically sick. He was completely enslaved by these sinful desires. And he can't figure out to get what he wants. So he gets a friend of his, Jonadab, and he listens to a plan that Jonadab comes up with about how Amnon could get what he wants. The plan worked, as we just saw. Well, we didn't look at the details of how. I'll leave that to you. But we immediately see how his lustful love turns into this scornful hatred. Amnon used and abused Tamar, and then he literally threw her away. The sobering reality of all this is that a very large part of our culture readily gives a voice to and even glamorizes one-dimensional characters like Amnon who are literally ruled by their lustful desires. Amnon would feel much more at home here than he did in the kingdom of David. Second person we see is Jonadab, this friend, and we could describe him as wisdom without principle. Jonadab was Amnon's friend and actually his cousin. The text tells us that he's actually David's nephew. This guy is probably the most dangerous man in this whole fiasco because he's very crafty. The verse, verse, uh, well, it's in there somewhere. Very crafty. Quote, and he kn- that means he knows how to get things done. He's a master manipulator. He understands people and circumstances enough to always seem to be one step ahead. And then he ends up on the side he knows will make him look the best. Lots of people like that in our world. He is dangerous because there is no integrity in his skill. Success is always the end goal for him, no matter what means are used. So we see him around and near the center of, and this plan he gives to David, which was, I mean, to Amnon, which was basically play like you're sick. Asks the king to send Tamar. He traps her. He gave Amnon the plan. And we see him come up in this chapter around this situation. And then later, we'll get to that in a minute. And two years after all this, when Absalom was ready to exact revenge upon Amnon for ruining his sister, 
Jonadab did nothing to stop Absalom's premeditated murder of Amnon. He knew what was going on. And he also advised King David in the aftermath when Absalom fled after killing Amnon in revenge. There are many warnings in Scripture about the danger of being gifted in one area, but also being without integrity and sincerity. This warning is especially relevant as we're going to see the more consequences in this story. This is not just a uh, problem in the secular sphere either, is it? Just going to say this once. Many of us have observed that in the church, those with the greatest gifts pose the gravest threat. For unless their gifts are wrapped in godliness, they can multiply disaster among Christ's flock. Next is David himself. He gets so angry, you can feel the heat even centuries later. But he didn't do anything. So we could describe David as anger without justice. He is the king. Not just the father, he is the king. When David, King David heard of these things, we read about what Amnon did to Tamar. We read he was very angry. David suddenly realized how Amnon had used him to get Tamar into this compromising situation. 5 through 7, that I just mentioned a minute ago, verses 5 through 7 in chapter 13. Jonadab said to Amnon, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight, that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon laid down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. And David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. Finally, David heard all the details of what had happened, including how she was now a destroyed woman, and the result was that he was very angry, verse 21. But that was all. He did nothing. He did not pursue justice. Amnon should have been punished, and Tamar should have been exonerated and helped. But Amnon was not held accountable. Tamar received no redress at all. And Absalom was handed a plausible excuse. Hear that? Plausible excuse. It was wrong, but it sure made sense to him. A plausible excuse for revenge. Notice there's a notation in most of your Bibles at the end of verse 21, which includes an addition from the Dead Sea Scrolls, and also the, it's in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was used especially in the New Testament times. And with the additional text there, verse 21 reads this way. When King David heard of these things about what Amnon did to Tamar, he was very angry, but he would not punish his son Amnon because he loved him. 
since he was his firstborn. Well, if so, why? Maybe because David is overly permissive towards his children, or perhaps the memory of his own sin with Bathsheba makes him hesitant to call others into account. We have another clue, though, in 1 Kings 1, verse 6, concerning another son of David, setting himself up as king, Adonijah, which should make, and this should make David's parenting a little clearer. We read there, 1 Kings 1, 6, but Adonijah's father, David, had never once reprimanded him. By saying, why do you act this way? In addition, it says that Adonijah was quite handsome and was born after Absalom. Whatever the reason, David did not have an excuse to do nothing. As both father and king, David is charged with maintaining justice, whether he is personally compromised or not. And we may understand David's failure to act, but we cannot, however, excuse it. How David operated is really a much more subtle danger than a tyrannical type father, you know, who... uses his authority by operating in his arbitrary power, just him. He wants to do it, he does it. A quiet, hands-off father or leader who never fulfills his responsibility to teach, to protect, to restrain, to lead, or to David, to even know what's going on. A man like this gives approval to evil by his silence. Looks better, but it's lethal. I was always surprised when I was teaching public high school for 13 years, and you'd see kids come in beat up, how nobody knew about it. So you can combine both of these, tyrannical and abusive, but they hide it. But there's also the ones that are just silent, don't do anything. Don't do anything with their kids. Don't explain life. Don't interact. Don't use any kind of wisdom. And those kids are left to their own devices, and those devices come from a sinful heart, and you're asking for disaster. And I would bet there's many people in this room this morning who know a lot about both of these extremes. Well, we finally get to this guy named Absalom, who most of you have heard of, and we could describe him as hatred without restraint. Verses 22 through 39 Absalom's hatred for Amnon and what he had done to his sister Tamar 
get this, quietly brewed for two full years before it exploded into this premeditated vengeance. He was looking for two full years how to kill this guy. And the plan went off like clockwork. Panic reigned until all the facts were in. But after Amnon had been killed, Absalom fled. And he went to his grandfather, Talmay, heard his name before? And was there for three years. Three years. And we think, what a rat. What a freak. Really? How many of us are still holding hateful vengeance for somebody if you had the means you'd carry it out years and years and years later listen carefully to Titus chapter 3 verses 3 through 7 for we ourselves were once foolish disobedience led astray slaves to various passions and pleasures Passing our days in malice and envy and hatred. Hated by others and hating one another. This means, folks, that we need a Savior. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So we've seen two of the major emphases the perversion we should absolutely loathe, and then the emphasis on the depiction, the graphic depiction of all these major male characters. But there's a third emphasis that's really, really, really the only way we can get through this chapter. And that is the perspective that we should keep when we see all around us disaster after disaster after disaster, lust, conniving, Weakness and hatred is what's in this chapter. Where is the Lord in all this? You asking that? Well, first consider one glaring lesson that we see once again in these pages. One big lesson. Our designs elude our control. Our designs elude our control. We fight this with every ounce of our being, but even the best laid plans don't translate into our ability to control how everything works out. How many times have you had to learn this? Keep going. But what is true of us is not true of the Lord. He still reigns, and everything is not out of his control. Don't turn me off yet, because some of you get really angry hearing that after this story we just read. 
And if we think he's asleep at the wheel, we are so wrong. You see, we've already been told what's going on here. Which is why we go through books. Verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter. We've already heard what's going on. Turn to chapter 12, verse 10 and 11. 2 Samuel 12, verses 10 and 11. This is David's accusation of David's sin with Bathsheba and his murder of her husband. Verse 10. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to your wife. Thus says the Lord, I will raise up evil, which is disaster or calamity against you, out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this before all Israel. In other words, publicly and before the son. And that's what's starting in chapter 13. What do we mean? This begins to happen here. God has spoken it. And it's beginning to happen. And look how the tragic events of chapter 13 correspond to those in chapter 12. Amnon's forced sexual escapade with Tamar to David's with Bathsheba. Absalom's premeditated murder of Amnon to David's murder of Uriah. So here we see the Lord fulfilling his word of judgment against David's house. From a human perspective, everything does look like chaos. But from God's perspective, he's fulfilling his word. And before you go crazy trying to swallow that, think of what David wrote in the Psalms about all of this. What did he say? Your judgments are right. Can we say that? The assurance that God is not only there, but fulfilling his word in the world we live in should give us assurance. It's maybe not the kind of assurance that we want, but this is what God knows we need. The king is reigning. He is sitting on his throne. And can we add that there's a whole lot we do not understand and demanding to have it all laid out so that you can come to your own decision to trust him is like saying, I don't trust you. And everybody in here that's ever had a child grow up in your home knows what it's like when a child throws a hissy fit and demands to know every detail of life that led to it and why you're doing what you're doing. 
and you don't explain it all to them, do you? But what you're teaching is that they can trust you until you know better how to explain it to a kid growing up. We're going to have eternity to get to know God. But he sure has given us a lot to know about how faithful he is and how just he is and how blameless he is. And he's proved his love to us by sending his son for us. Can you trust that God? Yes, that's the point. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, what a chapter. What a book. But thank you as, as you put on display the error and the sins of others that you also point out our need to recognize our own root sins in our hearts. And thank you that you tell us in the New Testament that the people in the Old Testament who grew in faith with you and went through hard stuff like this, many times because of their own rebelliousness to you, that you tell us about these things so that we can learn about your grace, about your love, about your justice, your blamelessness, your faithfulness, your love for us in Christ. Oh, God, teach us to take a breath, rein in our own feelings so that we can be humbled before your word to see you for who you really are and know your grace in Christ. We ask that in his name. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? One verse. Psalm 22, verse 28. For kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. And I think we need to say amen to that. Amen. Thanks. You're dismissed.